It's great to be together. I know that you're excited to be here, I can tell, and I hope you're ready to get into the Word. Will you grab your Bible this morning and open with me when you get that Bible to the book of Psalms? Psalm 1 is where we're going to go today. And if you're new or visiting or you just forgot your Bible or you don't own a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle. You will want one of those Bibles. That's a gift to you. We are in a series this summer where we're focusing in on some of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith. We're calling this series Seeking God, and we're looking at some of these spiritual disciplines, or, or if you don't like the word discipline, you could call them practices, practices of the Christian faith. They are like these habits that you find in Scripture that when the people of God practice them, it's a way to step into the flow of God's grace in your lives and so we, each week we're looking at one of these habits, these practices. And so some of the different examples of spiritual practices would be prayer or fasting or worship, daily Bible reading. If you're here last Sunday, Christopher preached just a marvelous sermon on, on the power of daily Bible reading, letting the Word of God soak your life. And so it's been rich, it's going to be rich and this morning, we take up the most misunderstood, the most neglected, the most maligned of all of the spiritual practices. This morning, we're going to talk about meditation. Meditation. Interesting, right? Even the mere mention of the word meditation in church can cause eyebrows to raise a little bit, right? That inner heresy meter in your heart can spike a little bit. You're like, wait a minute, meditation, isn't that kind of an Eastern thing or a New Age thing? Actually, did you know that meditation is a deeply biblical practice all over the scriptures? all over the scriptures. And so if you're feeling a little nervous about this topic, I want to I I put your heart at ease. We're going to go to the Word. I'm going to show you where, where we're seeing this practice, this habit of grace. In fact, right out of the gate, I want to I share with you a definition, a sentence that I'll put on the screen, and I'll have you consider this with me. This will serve as sort of a, a headline for everything we'll do together this morning. Here's how it goes. Christian meditation is the practice of filling your mind with the deep wisdom of God's word. Filling your mind, pressing it into your heart so that it begins to change the way you live. That's what, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a practice where you, you press God's word deeper into your heart, deep into your mind. You fill your mind with it so that it begins to transform you, transform your ideas, your thinking, your value system, your affections, ultimately changing the way that you live. What we're going to talk about today is Christian meditation, biblical meditation. I understand, River West, listen to me clearly. I understand that meditation has been practiced in our world by many different religious movements and groups in such a way where it's caused Christians to be nervous about 
the very mention of the word. You come to church and someone talks about meditation, and maybe you get a little skeptical. And this is actually, this can happen with a lot of the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices. They can sort of be hijacked by other movements, even sometimes movements within Christendom. They can be turned into something that's mystical or detached from the gospel or the word of Christ in some way. But that's, that's not what we're doing here. That's not what we're about at River West. At River West, we open the word. We seek wisdom from God's word about what these practices are and how we should do them. And we'll do that again today. I thought about titling my sermon, Taking Back Meditation for Jesus. <laughs> okay, because I want to do that. And you know why I want to do that? Because meditation is God's thing. It's God's thing. And so right away, what you've noticed there in my definition is I'm drawing a clear line. I'm drawing a line between the meditation that's often practiced out there and the meditation that's prescribed and described in here. This week, I went on Google in my search engine and I typed in meditation. And I was so discouraged by what I found. Page after page, you know, you can go page, page, page. I, it, five pages into a Google search on meditation, I did not find a single thing about the Bible or about the Christian faith. It was all, it was all about Buddhism and Zen and transcendental meditation and, and all these other things. Page after page, I got so discouraged and I realized we've, we've got our work cut out for us. So in Eastern religions, meditation is something where a person is encouraged to empty themselves, empty your mind. But Christian meditation is about filling your mind with God's truth, filling your mind with his word. Paul said to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Whoa. Unlike Eastern meditation in which the goal is to achieve mental passivity, right? Christian meditation involves mental activity. The psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's about hiding God's word. It's about something you do. It's active. You're filling your mind with the word of God. Whereas in Eastern meditation, it's often about imagining your new reality or creating a reality for yourself. In Christian meditation, we focus on things that are objectively true because God has told us they're true in his word, in his word. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take back meditation for Jesus. Are you with me? Are you with me? We're under the big top. Let's do something significant this morning. All right. I'm going to try to stay focused in a sermon on meditation. It's a little bit ironic. We have to focus here. But uh, will you turn with me then where we always go, the rule of our faith, God's word. Look with me at Psalm 1. That's where we'll find an amazing, amazing passage about meditation. Look at it with me. Psalm 1. Starting in verse 1, here's what the psalmist said. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day 
and night. What is this person like? Well, verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff was like the outside of a husk when they would, when they would winnow the seed The seed would fall and they'd keep the seed and the chaff was that worthless, weightless, substanceless fragment that would just fly away in the wind. It's this big contrast. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amazing psalm. Isn't that beautiful? What a psalm. Right there in the middle of it is this word meditation. Amazing. The claim of Psalm 1 is actually quite astounding. It's, but our problem is that sentence number 1 there, which is verses 1 and 2, that sentence is sort of long when you see it in your Bible. And it's long enough and it's complicated enough that we could miss the main point of the psalm. And the main point is this. The person who's blessed, the person who is truly fulfilled, the person who is ultimately most deeply happy is the person who doesn't do all these other things. We'll talk about them in a minute there in first one. That person is the person who meditates. Isn't that astounding? The psalmist says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be deeply fulfilled, the way that that happens in your life is through meditation, delighting, Delighting on the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night. That word meditation in the Hebrew is an amazing, amazing word. It's an ancient word that describes the sound you make when you're chewing on a meal. Isn't that interesting? That's the root of the word. It's the Hebrew word hagah which almost sounds like hot. You're just mowing on something, right? You're chewing on it. You're, 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 and it's even, it's even sometimes translated growl. And that's, that was the ancient word they used. And in, in the Bible, that word is used to describe the sound that a lion makes when it's growling over its prey. It's caught its prey. There's a verse in Isaiah and, and there's a threat to the prey. And, and the word, the Hebrew word is that word, to growl, to moan. Interesting. And it becomes the Hebrew word that the people used to describe meditation. It's this idea of chewing on something with the teeth of your mind and your heart, gnawing on the bone, taking your time, chewing, thinking, reflecting. What a concept. Love that idea of growling and chewing on a bone. I have a golden retriever, all right? Her name is Scout. The only time she growls is when you give her a bone. She's like the sweetest dog ever. She's adorable, but she literally, she is the worst guard dog on the planet. She's such a, if we ever, if there was an intruder that broke into my house, I would be protecting the dog, not the other way around. Last night I was sitting there and I looked up and my cat had my dog in a headlock. The dog was like laying in just passive and the cat's just pouncing on her. But if you give Scout a bone, that's the one moment when I've heard Scout growl. 
you give her a bone and then you walk close to her and she goes, <laughs> she growls, she's chewing on it, right? This is, a, this is a visual way of thinking about meditation. You take God's word, you slow down, you chew on it. You think about it. You take your time with it. And there's delight involved. Did you see that word delight in verse 2? It's not something that you would do out of obligation. It was do, it, it's something you would do because you realize this is like a delicious spiritual meal. Oh. When you, when you delight in something, you can't get enough of it, right? You want to savor every morsel, every bite. The most delicious meal I ever had, I had on my three-year anniversary with Kathy. We were in France, and we went to the French Riviera, and we walked into this restaurant on the Riviera that looked out over the Mediterranean and we walked in there at 5.45, and I realized quickly, Americans eat dinner a lot earlier than the French, okay? Because we went in there, there was no one there. The family that owned the restaurant were sitting there looking at us like Americans eating at 5.45. And, but they were really polite and kind, and the owner of the restaurant, it was a Mediterranean fam, family, and the owner, he walked up and, and, he, and he handed us a menu, and it was a piece of paper, and on the paper it said, chicken fish or pork. That's it. He's like, choose. And so we, 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 we chose fish. And then they proceeded to bring out this multi-course meal with fish in every, in the salad and the hors d'oeuvres and the dinner. And it was, part of it was the company. The company was pretty amazing. Part of it was the view. The view was amazing, but this meal was so delicious. I literally savored every bite. And the psalmist says, that's a lot like meditation, except that the meal is the word of God, the living word of God. You know, there's some verses, you read them in your Bible and you realize the wisdom of this verse is so deep that a speed read is not going to cut it. If I read it, if I just read over this, I'm going to miss these layers upon layers of deep wisdom. Sometimes you got to slow down. Read more slowly. Meditate. I've talked to Christians in our church and they'll often say, I just, reading the Bible is so challenging for me. I, I hear other Christians talk about their experience in the word. They'll read something and they'll go, oh, I saw this profound insight or, you know, I learned this amazing thing. And many of us don't have that experience. We read the word and, and, and we're like, oh, you know, and we, we feel like we're missing something. And, and then it can cause us to go, is there something wrong with me? Am I not as deep? Am I less intelligent? Am I not as spiritual? It might not be you at all. It might be your, your method. You're reading so fast. You're not slowing down to think and chew and taste, to suck out the marrow of the bone of God's word. That's what meditation is, biblical meditation. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to show you the three 
key ingredients in this psalm that will help us get ever, all the wisdom about meditation that we need out of this psalm. There are three uh, interpretive keys, I'm going to call them, and they are the strong contrast that we see in there between the righteous and the wicked, and it, and it boils down to meditation. Did you notice that? There's a strong contrast. The second key is the astounding promise that the psalmist makes about those who do meditate on God's word. So the strong contrast, the astounding promise, and then finally we'll end with this vivid word picture that we see in verse 3 of a tree planted by a stream of water. That word picture is going to help us learn how to meditate. So we'll walk through each of these three, and then at the end I'm going to tell you something really significant about Jesus. But let's look first at the the contrast the psalmist makes. The two people described here could not be more different. Did you notice that? Look at verse 1 at the way that the psalmist describes the wicked person. It's as if he's saying everything about this person's life is under the influence of sin. Do you see that? He talks about the way this person walks. How does this person walk? They walk in the way of the wicked. But not only just the way they walk, they stand in the way of sinners. They walk in the counsel of the wicked, pardon me. They stand in the way of sinners. And that's not just about the way they walk. It's not just about the way they stand. Even in their sitting, they sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are people who from a distance mock and make fun of. And they don't ever come to you personally. They just say stuff from a distance. And the psalmist says, this is like this whole, the whole the whole gamut of this person's life is under the influence of of sin and evil. Whereas the righteous person, see that? Verse 2, the righteous person, everything about this person's life is under the influence of the word of God. She delights in it. The Torah, that word law is the word Torah, it's this really beautiful Hebrew word that describes God's instruction. It's not just the legal parts of the Bible, but it's a way of describing the authoritative word of God. Everything about the righteous person's life is under the influence of God's word. Day and night, it says, she meditates. She doesn't just read it every once in a while. She's thinking about it. She's chewing on it. She's enjoying it to the point where it penetrates deep. It changes her affections, her actions, her attitudes. So beautiful. It's as if the psalmist is saying, you know, whatever shapes your thinking, whatever has the loudest voice into your head and your heart, into your thoughts, your ideas, your values, whatever is primarily influencing you in that level is going to directly impact the way you live, the way you live your life. So true. We know this. This week, I, I read an article this week, and the title of the article, the, the, the moment I saw it, I knew, I, I want to read this. It was called, How to Avoid Anger Overload in the Digital Age. Yeah, I was like, I need to read this. Anger overload. It was, the, it was a very profound um, article where the, the author, it's a Christian author, and he talks about how Americans are more angry in 2018 than we've ever been. 
There's just like, they've, they've been studying this over the decades and realizing Americans report to be more angry than ever. And the reason is because we're constantly inundated with stories and news feeds and Instagram posts about all of the horrible things that are happening all over the world. Think about it, a hundred years ago, most of the news that we get, the average person would never even hear about. Isn't that amazing? And he talked about how so often the stories are, are stories that they're, they're disconnected from your community or from anything that you can do to make an impact. So you're hearing about stuff that's happening in South America or someone found a snake in their toilet in Florida. You know, I remember that story. And you're, and you're hearing all this news and, it's, and the purpose of the news is to shock you and to create rage in you. And we're constantly in the flow of all of that. And what does it create? It creates this chaff in our lives. It's, it's meaningless. It's not to say we shouldn't care about what's happening in the world, but we need a little context. We need to know what are the things I would prioritize and as a part of my church family get do something about. And you know what was amazing about this article? At the end of the article, he said, you know what the cure for this is? Meditation. Take time, slow down, carve out some of that input and open up a little bit of time in your life to feed deeply on the word of God. How powerful. So we've got this contrast. That's the first thing. The second ingredient here is the promise. It's an astounding promise, really, if you look at it. Verse 3, look at the metaphor with me. It's not just that the person who meditates is blessed. The psalmist says they actually prosper in everything they do. Isn't that amazing? Look at it. Verse 3, this person's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is an astounding promise. The Hebrew word is the same word we would use for success. There, there's some promise that you would experience some kind of success. Now, we have to define success biblically, of course, we will. We have to define prosperity. What does it mean to prosper in a biblical sense? But let's not miss this promise. The, the, the writer of the psalm is saying a person who meditates on God's word will experience success in their life. Amazing. And you know what happened to me this week? As I studied meditation, I realized that promise is not isolated to Psalm 1 alone. It's all over the Old Testament. The most astounding promises in the Old Testament are connected to meditation. I couldn't believe it when I, when I learned this. So let me show you just one example of many. Keep your finger in Psalm 1 and turn to the left. Go to the book of Joshua, chapter 1, right after the book of Deuteronomy, okay? Right before the book of Numbers, Judges, pardon me. Joshua 1 is where we'll go. The context of the book of Joshua is it's this big moment in redemptive history. 
Moses has died and God has chosen a new leader for his people and that leader is Joshua. And right out of the gate in the book of Joshua, God speaks directly to Joshua and gives him counsel for how he could be successful to experience prosperity in his leadership. And there's some repeated themes. God says, you need to be strong and courageous. Does that sound familiar? Be strong and courageous, God says over and over. But the key to that strength and the key to that courage actually has to do with meditation. Look at it with me. Joshua 1, I'll read just verses 7 and 8 this morning. God says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Look at this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Does that sound familiar? That's Psalm 1. Day and night, meditate on God's word so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Does that word sound familiar? That's right out of Psalm 1. In all that he does, he prospers. God now says to Joshua, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything written in it, and then you will have prosperity, prosperity, and then you will have good success. God says, Joshua, here's the thing. If you're going to be successful as my leader, here's what you need to do. You need to become a person who meditates on my word day and night. Hide my word in your heart. Soak yourself in my word. Think deeply about it. It may not be enough just to read over it briefly every once in a while. You may need to slow down and chew and pray and think. And you know what will happen, Joshua, as you do that, my word will begin to take root in your heart and it will begin to change your affections. It will begin to change the way you live. It will begin to impact how you behave. You'll become a person who's careful to do everything written in my word. This sounds to me a lot like Psalm 119. Don't turn there. I'll just put a couple of these verses on the screen. Psalm 119, the whole psalm is about meditation. And the psalmist says, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Young men, would you like to be a man who keeps your way pure? How do you do that? By guarding it according to God's word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. There's the word delight. I will not forget your word. It's so amazing. The psalmist says, here's what success looks like. Biblical success, biblical prosperity is a life that begins to be transformed because God's word has soaked so deeply into my heart and my values that it changes me. My desires change and then my actions change. And God says, that is prosperity. 
Or in the New Testament, the word we use is godliness. <laughs> Becoming like Christ. Amazing. You know, James said the same thing. James 1.25. Here's how James said it. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres in the looking, that's meditation, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that person will be blessed in his doing. So you begin to realize meditation is, it's so tragic that it's been hijacked by our world because it's so biblical and it's so powerful. And the promise made to the person who begins to practice this is so profound, so profound. I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, if daily Bible reading is like a back scratch, which I love back scratches, all right, think about this. This is good. If daily Bible reading is like a back scratch, meditation is like a deep tissue massage. Now, don't get me wrong. Back scratches are great, but sometimes what you need is a deep tissue massage. You need somebody to get in there with their elbow. Have you ever had somebody do that? And find the knot and go, we got to work this thing out. This is, this is tweaking you. You're out of balance. Meditation. This week, I went running, and I took one phrase from the book of Colossians. I'll, I'll sometimes do this. I took a phrase from Colossians 3, verse 1. If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Is that verse familiar to you? Does that sound familiar? I just took the first phrase of that verse. If then you have been raised with Christ. And I said, I'm going to meditate on this while I run. And I barely got past the word if. (laughs) But I Definitely spent some time on the phrase, raised with Christ. What does that mean? I had to think about it. I had to pray about it while I was running and gasping for life. I had to, I had to press it into my heart. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? What a concept. Before I could even get to what you do, God said, take some time just with that concept. And you know what it was? It was like a deep tissue massage for my soul. Amazing. So you say, Pastor, I'm in. I want to do this. I want to try. And that's the purpose of our series. Remember, in the first week, I said, we're not just going to learn about these things. We're going to try to practice them. I'm going to ask you, give this a try. So you say, well, how do I do something like meditation in a biblical way? Maybe you've never even tried this. So to answer that question, we're going to look again at this metaphor. Go back with me, Psalm 1. The metaphor, the word picture of the tree is the key to learning how to meditate. So look closely, Psalm 1, verse 2. How is this tree described? This person who meditates is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It's a picture of of a tree that's so rooted, there's stability, there's strength, there's fruitfulness. Do you notice that tree? Where is that tree planted? 
It's planted in a very specific place. It's planted by a stream of water. That's not an incidental detail. The psalmist is being very, very particular there because in the ancient world, it didn't rain that often. And so a tree planted near a stream of water could survive the dry seasons of life. When no rain falls, it wouldn't rattle that tree. That tree would not wither. It would not fall over. Why? Because its roots have shot down into the ground and they're tapped into a source of water that never ends. And the psalmist says, take that image and bring it back to the idea of meditation. Meditation is, what are you doing? You're, you're tapping into something real, a source of nourishment, of truth, of power, of wisdom, food for your soul. You let the roots of your life go in deep and you tap in. And I want you to try it this week. Here's, what, here's how, one way to do it, all right? This is super practical. You might want to write these three steps down. Because you say, I want to try this. Okay, it's so simple. Here's what you do. Step one, pick a verse that you want to tap into. Pick a verse or a paragraph from Scripture. Maybe it's a a, a really, really gospel-rich verse, like Ephesians 2. Try Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, or Galatians 2, 20. Write that down. You just pick one verse or one passage, because you can't meditate on the entire Bible. You have to pick a place to go, right? Pick a place. Maybe the way you pick your verse is you're, you're having your daily reading, and you read a passage, and there's a verse in there that you know is very significant. It's a, it, it captures all the truth of that passage. And you say, okay, I'm going to take that one verse, and I'm really going to go in deep. Or maybe you pick a verse that really is convicting you or challenging you or, you know, I need this. I need that deep tissue massage <laughs> the pastor was talking about. Pick a verse that makes you uncomfortable. Take time with it. Pick a verse that, that applies to something that you're dealing with. Are you dealing with shame right now? Are you constantly, is your heart condemning you? Meditate on Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Meditate on that, right? Maybe you're a husband and you're struggling in your marriage. Meditate on Ephesians 5.26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I've thought about that verse for 26 years and I still have not plumbed the depths of the wisdom of that verse. So profound. Maybe you say, I'm struggling with my thought life. Meditate on Psalm 119 or go to Philippians 4, verse 8, where Paul says, think about these things. Think about things that are true and noble and worthy and excellent, right? And you just, you pick the verse and you decide, I'm gonna tap into this verse. Now, let me tell you a story about my life. Some time ago in my life, God brought out into the light some, some of the uglier sin in my life. And it was a very painful time for me, but it was also 
a time of immense grace in my life. God was being so good to me. You know, when God forces some stuff to come out into the light, you don't necessarily like that, but you know, I need this. And at that time in my life, the Lord led me to a verse that, I, that became very precious to me. And I meditated on that verse. And I'm going to put it on the screen so you can just see one example. This is Colossians 3, verse 12. This verse is very precious to me. Where Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What do you put on? Compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Here's what happened to me as I, as I prayed that verse and I thought about that verse, I realized that verse starts with my identity. Even in the moment where, where the ugliest parts of who I am, I've, I've, been, I've, been, I've been told to understand and, and confess. What was God saying to me? He was saying, you're my chosen one. You're the object of my love. And not only that, this was the one that was amazing. You're holy. You are holy in Christ. And I love you so much. And then the verse gave me a way forward. Because I realized, now that I know my identity in Christ, what should I do? Paul says, here's what you do. Clothe yourself with new garments. Take off that old stuff that doesn't make sense anymore because you're in, you're in Christ and clothe yourself with Christ-like things. Compassion and gentleness and kindness. So powerful. So I meditated on that. How about you? Pick a verse. Pick a verse this week. Today, will you, when you leave, commit to this. Say, this week, I'm going to take one verse or one passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick it. And then here's what you do. Step two. So you pick the verse. Step two is you press it in. Press it in, into your mind, into your heart. Say, how do I do that, Pastor? There's a lot of things you can do. Give your full attention to it. Read it, and then read it again, and then read it again, and again, and again. Slow down. Read slowly. Read prayerfully. Write it out. Write it out several times. I knew a pastor who he wrote out the entire book of Romans, Amazing, because he wanted to get the full power of the meaning. Something about writing out the verse, that the connection between your hand and your pen and your heart and your mind, it brings things together. Write it out. You might memorize it. And then as you write it and you, and you read it and you, you pray about it, you begin to, it begins to get pressed in, into your heart, into your mind. And then finally... Thirdly and finally, so you pick a verse, you press it in, and then third, pray that verse into action. Pray it into action. So it's interesting, there is this connection between meditation and prayer. Have you noticed this? It's sometimes it's hard to know where meditation becomes prayer. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter because a lot of times the spiritual disciplines are like that. They, they, they intersect with one another. Psalm 1, isn't this interesting? Psalm 1 is the first psalm in what? In a book of prayer. It's actually not even necessarily a prayer. It's almost like a lens that you use 
as you move into the rest of the Psalms. And what is that lens? Meditation. How fascinating. It was just as if the psalmist knew the key to moving from God's word to prayer goes through this process of meditating, thinking, pressing it in, and then you can turn it into a prayer that God would change you, that you would understand it, that it would mean something to your, not just your head, but to your heart. And we learned the purpose of meditation is that your life would change, that your behaviors would change. So begin to pray, Lord, help me take the truth of this verse and begin to live it out. So I won't be like that person that James described, who's merely a hearer of a word, but not a doer of the word. Amen? Amen? This week, we try that in your Christian life. Pick a verse, press it in, pray it into action. And here's what I'm going to do this morning as we get ready to go to the table. I'm going to end with a word to you about grace. A word to you about Jesus. Here's what happened to me this week. As I meditated on Psalm 1, and I thought about this picture of a tree where its roots are tapped into this living water. It reminded me of a story from the Gospel of John. Maybe you know this story about a woman who met Jesus at the well. Do you remember this story? Fascinating story. Go read it today. Meditate on it. Powerful. She showed up at a well because she was thirsty, and she encountered living water. Jesus, who said to her, if you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again by the afternoon. But I could give you a living water where if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. And then the woman said, where where do I get this water? And of course, Jesus was saying, I am the water. I am the living water. Jesus, the living word of God, the, the water of God, the source of eternal life. Do you realize if you read Psalm 1 and you don't, you're not connected to Jesus, that psalm will crush you with discouragement because you'll realize this is not me. I don't delight in the word of God. I don't ever do this. I'm not actually righteous. And you know what? Without Jesus, that's true. We're not. Amen? But we are tapped into a source of eternal water, like a spring that never gives up. And not only that, that living water hung on a cross in my place to die for my failure, my sin, my unrighteousness so that I could get his righteousness. He took my sin, I got his righteousness. And that very same Jesus, you're connected to him, that Jesus will inspire you and empower you as you seek to meditate on his word. Try it this week. I'm gonna pray for you and then we're gonna go to the table together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we marvel at the wisdom of your word. There are verses, there are passages, there are chapters that deserve more than a speed read where we would slow down 
and chew and think and pray and be transformed as we feed. And so we thank you for giving us this precious, precious practice, Lord. Thank you. I pray this week for our whole church that you would empower us and inspire us to try this out, to step into it, Lord, and to see how our hearts will be transformed. And of course, above all of this and over all of this, we thank you, God, for the grace of the gospel. This is something we get to do because of your grace. And so we say thank you, Jesus. And the way we want to do that this morning is by going again to the table, the table of thanksgiving, to remember your sacrifice, Lord. Would you grab our hearts this morning? Would you transform our minds as we do it? We pray. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen, amen.